This is Song. And this is Sarah. This is Effing Ethical, where we try to make sense of all the choices facing consumers every day. I always love starting with the history of things, and I think it's useful to talk a little bit about the history of the language surrounding um, you know, whether to use cannabis or marijuana. Uh, so back before the 1900s, you know, the cannabis plant in the U.S. was called cannabis or hemp. It was like around, people were using it. Hash apparently was kind of popular in the upper classes and cannabis was like starting to be used even as medicines in the U.S. and Europe with, you know, pharmaceutical companies making money from cannabis extracts within medications. And, you know, I think you'll see like parallels with some of the things that we talked about in our first drug supply chains episode, where we talked about how other kind of like illicit drugs, you know, like heroin actually used to be used by pharma companies um, as well. So fast forward to the early 1900s with the Mexican Revolution, um, which claimed the lives of like 1.5 million people, right? And so there was this mass kind of migration of hundreds of thousands of Mexican refugees and and migrant workers um, who were fleeing violence um, to come to the American Southwest. So as they came, they also brought their kind of practice of smoking marijuana. And then there were also like sailors, apparently from Brazil and Caribbean, who brought the practice to New Orleans, where, you know, there was like the kind of the booming black jazz scene. And that's where sort of like musicians started to adopt it. And so there was all of this influx of, you know, immigration that escalated xenophobic sentiment, um, right? There was racism involved in it. And so there were these like government propaganda campaigns, you know, no surprise there by people like Harry Anslinger, um, who was the commissioner uh, of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics at the time. And he and others like created the, these super racist narratives. Like, you know, we've you know, all heard this before um, about like people who smoke marijuana, right, rather than what Americans were using for, for basically the same thing. Rather than calling it cannabis, you know, calling it marijuana um, so that they could kind of attach it to, you know, this idea of, of like the other. And these campaigns were basically kind of pointing to kind of like made up side effects of the drug. So, you know, they would say that it, um, it, it made people violent and, and more dangerous and immoral and, and lazy and um, also gave them like superhuman strength and all of these like different things that just stoked fear and, and and racism and xenophobia against people. So language is so important, right? And so some people say because of this racist history of the word marijuana that we shouldn't use it and we should use cannabis instead, um, a much more kind of quote-unquote like neutral language. But on the other hand, does erasing the word marijuana from our language and using cannabis instead just kind of wipe out all of the harmful and and racist history and kind of like give us an out to having to confront, right, the harms of the, the very kind of racist drug laws that were enacted based on that word on Black and brown communities. Right. And so like, are we playing in to things like Jeff Session saying, quote unquote, good people don't smoke marijuana. Like, are we playing into that kind of 
um, that kind of narrative? Yeah, I, I feel like it's a hard question. And in some ways it took replacing marijuana. It was like, it was tactical, right? Like replacing that word marijuana, which has all of this yeah, loaded history. And what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like kind of like attachments to it um, that prevented it for for all of these years from uh, from getting it decriminalized and legalized. So maybe it's it's a good thing, right? That we were able to kind of like tactically use the word cannabis to kind of cut through that and be able to kind of like implement these these laws now. But on the other hand, right now it's like typically white men that are primarily benefiting from this new cannabis industry. Sure, there's like the decriminalization of it. There's like the expungement of records, pieces of it and, and all of that. But as we're talking about industry and the people who are kind of like benefiting and profiting, it's this association. It's almost like this kind of this other kind of more sterile word of cannabis that's primarily benefiting um, a certain type of population. So I think it really kind of begs the question of not necessarily, is there one that we should use more conclusively than the other? I think it's not just a, a question of like whether the two terms are interchangeable or anything like that, but perhaps it really should be the communities that were targeted and harmed by the use of the word, who gets to, to decide and who gets to make the call on like what really is more harmful or what is more helpful or what is more empowering or, or not, right? And um, I feel like, yeah, these are questions that I, I think people will be thinking about and kind of grappling with because again, just like words matter. One last quick note about language and, and words. I actually, you know, had never thought about this aspect of it before, but, you know, when I was doing research for this episode, I, I read this article um, from something called the High Stakes Project, which is a student-driven reporting project that takes a deep and broad look at marijuana in New York as the state's drug laws remain in flux at Syracuse University. So a point that they made was that uh, cannabis sativa, the I guess like the kind of like the technical name for the plant was first named by Carl Linnaeus, so the binomial nomenclature guy. Kind of like no surprise, he was racist too, right? So he did this thing where he divided humankind into four racial subgroups and ranked them according to who he thought was better. And so, you know, as we're thinking about kind of like racist undertones for words, I think we like useful to put into context that people who created seemingly kind of really neutral words on their face because we you know they're scientific or whatnot can also have racist undertones in them as well and <laughs> it's interesting that you said that because as someone who studied natural resource management and learned a lot of the scientific words for plants there's a whole lot of like weird stuff that took place when people were trying to name plants. It's a bunch of words that sound Latin. There's, I mean, they're supposed to be Latin, but people like Latinified, I don't know if that's a word, words in order to like name all of these <laughs> animals and plants. And like, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to go into that now, but like, they're not <laughs> neutral. Like, yeah, some of yeah. them are funny. Some of them are offensive. Like, these are not neutral <laughs> things. So yeah. anyways, um, 
yeah, I love that. I love thinking about that. And also, it's not that we're, we necessarily replace one with the other. But I think that something that I've been thinking about is how policy follows culture shifts. And again, when doing research, a a podcast brought up a thought that I was sort of wondering if there was a parallel and they kind of made a similar parallel, which was, you know, in in the 2008 presidential election, um, marriage equality was a huge deal, right? And that wasn't one that wasn't that long ago, right? And so mm-hmm. to just realize how far culture and politicians have moved on policies since then. Um, and similarly, right? Like you said, it's possible that the use of the word cannabis instead of marijuana has sort of changed how we even think about the market, the product, the experience. And it's very possible that that's had a very positive impact on the social idea of this drug and how culture is changing and how people feel about it and how policies are following that. So I was just thinking a lot about how, like right now and in the last election, there was like a little bit of talk about it. Now there's a lot of talk about it. There's actually a lot happening in federal, at least legislation, not things that will necessarily pass the Senate, although there is a lot of conversation about the decriminalization bill that's supposedly coming will maybe be the bill that really, really pushes the Democrats to eliminate the filibuster. So who knows if that'll happen? But I just thought it was really interesting to think about the cultural shift and Mm -hmm. potentially what impact has the beginnings of the legalization and the use of the word cannabis and how things are marketed actually made the product far more acceptable in in society. Like a majority of Americans are very pro-legalization, which I thought was really interesting. The other, or really the direction that a lot of my research for this episode went, and it makes sense because this is a market, is kind of the economic decisions um, around legalizing cannabis. And it is really interesting to think about. And one note that I thought was a really good place to start or kind of like a preface, which is every government policy is going to end up with like some quote winners and quote losers. It's basically impossible to make a neutral policy. The goal of legislators and the economists that do all of the research and kind of calculations to put things things together are just trying to like either minimize harm or maximize for something. But to assume that literally any policy we can think of is neutral and has no quote losers or, or people or communities that are harmed by it. um, It just doesn't work that way. Like there's never been a policy (laughs) that, that, um, that works that way. So the question is like, who have been the losers and who are the winners in legalization? And the other sort of piece tying to culture that I thought was really interesting was, yeah, so a a professor at Temple University who's an economist and researches a lot of the like social impacts of things like legalization of cannabis. She made a really interesting point, which was if both alcohol and cannabis were like discovered at the same time. Like we'd, we'd all just discovered both of them in the last like 10 years or five years or whatever. 
And we were doing an economic analysis of the pros and cons of legalizing both of them. She said that she would be on the side of legalizing cannabis and not legalizing alcohol because the research is limited. But with the research that they do have, there seem to be less negative social consequences to cannabis use than there is to alcohol use. Which I thought was really interesting, and they'll you know they'll find out a lot more as more states make it legal. Um, if and when it becomes federally legal, there will be a lot more ability to do really good research um, because of how the federal government supports research, finances it, that kind of thing. But I thought that was a really interesting way to just sort of like remind ourselves of we have like social expectations and thoughts about these things, not like strict economic, which when I say economic, we're talking about the like human impact of, of these things. That that's really what we're talking about, right? When people are for or against or how do we do it? There are tremendous negative consequences to people drinking alcohol. We have not since the night. 1910s or whatever, um, even thought that it should be illegal, right? Like we want to limit it. We don't want in the US people under 21 to to drink, but we would, there's no conversation about making it illegal, right? But there are tremendous negative social and community consequences. Yeah. That thought experiment about, yeah, if both alcohol and cannabis were both like discovered at the same time, which would be more harmful my gut reaction is that just like immediately alcohol would be more harmful because, you know, thinking anecdotally, when have I done the most things that were potentially harmful to myself and to others? It's, you know, not when I uh, had smoked a joint, right? It was probably more if I've had a little bit too much to drink when I was in college. So yeah, absolutely agree with that. And I think an important point is that even when looking at the social harms that were caused by alcohol and caused by cannabis in our history, I feel like so much of the harm came from the criminalization of either or or both and different times in history, right? Like the harms, it's difficult to decouple that from the amount of harm that has been wreaked on our society. You know, for cannabis, the harm that I think of is not necessarily the harms of the effects of the drug itself, but it's, it's the harms of, of the systems that were, uh, that were put into place because of like the racist, xenophobic policies. Right. So to your point about like policies are, are not, they're not neutral. And I think even in the most kind of like well-intentioned policies can have negative effects. And I think it's important, yes, in the framing of the the language of policies and laws while, you know, before they're in the books, but I think it's also so much even more important, right? Like in the implementation of it to be really mindful of the impacts and to um, fix things along the way and to course correct so that harms are being reduced and that the benefits are being kind of more widely distributed. You know, it's it's interesting. You also mentioned, you know, research that's now being done. And two days ago, as of the recording of this podcast, uh, finally, the DEA approved new growers for 
research marijuana. So before, before, you know, two days ago, literally for more than 50 years, that one lab out of the University of Mississippi was the only one that could grow marijuana for FDA approved clinical trials, right? So think about kind of how bizarre that is. So, you know, there's all this talk around how marijuana cannabis is an illegal schedule one drug. What that essentially means, it's not necessarily kind of tied to how legal or not something is. The drug schedule is based on two things, potential for abuse, and that's loosely described as when individuals take a certain substance recreationally, whether they will develop certain personal health hazards or pose risks to others or society as a whole, or, you know, whether there is medical value, right? So those two kinds of things are, are balanced to decide where on the, the schedule a certain, a certain substance is placed. And schedule one, it's going to be like the most stringent, and then it goes all the way down to schedule five. Now, According to the DEA, Schedule 1 drugs have the highest potential for abuse and balanced with kind of lowest medical use. And, you know, marijuana is on there. Marijuana is on there along with heroin and ecstasy. Um, And below that in Schedule 2 are things like oxycodone and, yep, that oxy, right, Um, and methamphetamines. Yes, that meth. <laughs> and so it's it's like it's really kind of baffling now to think about marijuana being placed on on kind of like that that four by four matrix of like low medical value and high potential for abuse, right? Particularly again, going back to the idea that, you know, back in the day before um, before it became criminalized, cannabis was already being used for medical uses. But the reason that they say that there are few medical uh, uses now is because of the fact that there just haven't been um, the kind of level of clinical trials and research that's been able to be done because it's placed on the schedule one drug. So see the, like, uh, just <laughs> cycle there, right? Like, yeah. The, that economist that I was referencing from Temple because of that, the research they did was really interesting. It was very like social behavior, economic research. It wasn't like scientific. And what they found, and this was fascinating, is they looked at older adults. And what they found was like in states where cannabis had been legal, older adults are, by older adults, I don't mean like in their 60s, but just like, I think adults was like 20s to like 39 and then older adults was 40 and above. Yeah, that's right. So because those older adults are most likely to have things like chronic pain, like conditions that would keep them out of work, that in the states where cannabis had been legalized, basically adults, these older adults were either like leaving work less or returning to work more. So what they were able to find is like, there seems to be some connection between the availability of cannabis and the treatment of some of these things like chronic conditions, right? Where they weren't actually looking on a medicinal level of here's our pool of people, right? Some of them are taking it. Some of them are taking something else. We'll see how their pain is reduced. They just were able to see in the labor market that the older adults were either staying in or returning quicker or coming back 
because of the availability of cannabis, which was super interesting. And the other piece of research I saw that was an interesting way to think about it was the price elasticity of both legal and illegal cannabis. And this isn't necessarily surprising. Both are pretty elastic, meaning if the price goes significantly up, people are going to buy less. If it goes down, they're going to buy a lot more. And what they found is that people will substitute away. So if you're taking cannabis as like a, I don't know, it's not really a party drug, but like socially, right? Then you would substitute away for something cheaper, I don't know, alcohol or or something else. If you're using it for medicinal purposes, then again, you would substitute away for something else that, that was available to you. And something that a lot of these researchers are sort of starting to question and there just hasn't been the right legalization in certain states to totally figure this out is would the legalization of cannabis actually have a positive impact on the opioid epidemic because opioids by comparison are so easily accessible. But if instead of using opioids for a long-term chronic condition, you turn to cannabis for a long-term chronic condition, which you're far less likely to become addicted to. And there's far, again, lesser, you know, negative social impacts to cannabis, then could it actually have this, um, this positive impact on the opioid epidemic? And I thought that was a really interesting question out there, right? Like, we know that it is a drug used for medicinal purposes, we know that it is a drug used for social or just sort of personal enjoyment purposes. And whether it's legal or illegal, people will substitute away if it gets too expensive. Um, or they'll, you know, turn to it if it's if it's cheaper than the other options. And I just thought that was a really interesting way to look at, again, like if we take our sort of either the history or sort of how we might emotionally feel about people who you know, smoke pot or what, like whatever it is that we sort of think about that and actually look at the potential social benefit or harm. It's really interesting to think about how there might be this other positive social change. Um, And like you said, and we can just research better the health benefits or treatment benefits of cannabinoids, the the specific different types of chemicals in, in cannabis. Yeah, I love that bringing in like the economics of like the substitutions, because we have such a vivid imagery of what the opioid crisis looks like in America. And to be able to replace that, right, I think it's such a powerful image. I, I think this idea of like the employer um, and thinking about thinking about policies from an input perspective is, is is interesting because I think it points to, um, and you know, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of arguments to be made for why um, this needs to be addressed like ASAP on the federal level. But one of the things is also incentives, right? In that same study or in that same podcast episode, they were talking about that loophole where you can't discriminate against someone for their marijuana use outside of work hours. However, the requirement for a drug test for certain employers and the ability for employers to then terminate with a positive drug test. And because certain drugs leave your system faster 
than, than cannabis. Um, it might incentivize people to then use drugs that are probably less safe, potentially, right? Like more dangerous, more quote unquote illegal, just because they leave your body faster, even if it's more harmful. Um, and so what a lot of the kind of on hindsight sort of review and study of the impacts of, of legalization has shown is that all of this like piecemeal legislation in some ways has been good because it's, it's allowed certain states to kind of learn from the mistakes or the, the good things that have happened um, in certain states and apply and to get better over time. Um, but in, in other ways, it's really hard to come up with a way to address um, a lot of the kind of like incentives that need to be aligned and, and all of that. Yeah. Um, something that I hadn't really thought about. Well, actually, first, did you know that CBD only recently became federally legal? Um, I had no idea. I mean, I guess I thought it was federally legal because yeah, like you could get it anywhere. And it's just yeah. that most of the states had. But anyways, there's a lot of benefits to federal legalization. Like there are a lot of economic benefits to federal legalization of anything until sort of federal legalization, the, um, the way that a company must structure and sell their product sort of state by state is like super complex. So that's still the case with any products containing THC, but um, the products that only contain CBD I assume you could just like buy it online and they'll ship wherever. But anyways, I thought it was really interesting that that only recently happened. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one, one piece of it. The other thing that I was listening to a conversation about that was really interesting, which is once a state legalizes, there's all of these other economic and social questions, well, that you hope that they figure out ahead of time. One, who get the who gets the permits to grow? Who gets to sell? How are you going to tax it? And there's sort of this discussion on the growing side of are they looking at it with a with a social equity lens, right? Are they making sure that communities who have been previously negatively impacted by the laws making it illegal? Do they have access to some of these permits, et cetera? Um, On the other hand, is it kind of just like every agricultural product where the people who actually grow it don't really make the most money? (laughs) And so there's kind of that question there, right? Like, especially if you're a small farm compared to a large industrial farm. It was just a really interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about, which is the like, who actually gets to grow it once you make it legal? Um, And it is you know, it's always going to be heavily regulated. I guess that there are, there's more research and things happening with like testing, like actually testing like the chemical composition, which seems to be a good type of regulation um, when you're going to sell something like this so that the consumer knows what, what they're actually buying, but also how you grow it, right? It's, it's a product that requires a lot of agrochemicals, a lot of water, a lot of energy, um, depending on kind of the sun where you live or having to use light sources, things like that. So it can be really expensive to grow. It's also really complicated. And are the farmers who are doing that, is it just another industry that's going to go to large corporates? Because that's kind of the only way you can afford to do it um, was, was an interesting question. And then there's also the question of how much are you going to tax it, right? 
I mentioned earlier this like su- this potential substitution effect between alcoholic and, and cannabis. And I know it's something that they're still researching again, because it just hasn't been legal for that many years in that many states. But I would say anecdotally, like amongst people I know that there's like a clear substitution effect, right? Of like, oh, like I should drink less, but I want to like do something, right? Maybe a cannabis product is is the way that you you substitute. States gain a lot of revenue from their taxes on alcohol. So is there going to be a negative impact to total revenue or a positive impact? Um, Apparently, Colorado takes in like $400 million in cannabis tax versus $50 million in alcohol tax. And apparently that's less of an indication of like the volume being sold as just like the really high taxes. It's like 15%. Which... You know, Colorado has, a, you know, has a really interesting economic story to tell about what they've used those taxes for, but also have they, who have they priced out of the market, right? And if cannabis mm-hmm. is a, a very elastic product, if people, as soon as it goes 5%, 10% or 15% more expensive, are they going to go to something else? And it's just, it's really interesting to like, yeah, like you said, there's this benefit of going state by state because states can kind of like trial it. On the other hand, some of the reasons why it's really challenging and expensive to even participate in the industry is you can't really have a bank account (laughs) depending on how the state you're in has looked at it. So that's a real, that's a really expensive, complicated piece. Um, again, like large companies are are playing in this market, and so they're trying to sort of anticipate where where is it going to be legalized? Are they you know buying up land in order to sell? There's just like a lot going on there that it's not like a simple market, and it's it's added. There's added complication from it being state by state, whereas if there was kind of a federal standard whatever that is, if it is totally legal, if it is a schedule three drug, like there's a lot of different options, but that would at least provide states guidance on how then themselves to regulate it. The question around like who gets to buy in and and be like participate in this economy, right? So you mentioned the growers and the cultivators on the one hand, and then there's like the dispensaries on the other. But, you know, you also mentioned that there's going to be newer industries around like testing, right, distribution. And, and maybe those are places that might become easier for for communities that have traditionally been left out of big kind of agricultural economies to also enter. So I actually looked up how much it would cost to like open a dispensary. And I also looked up like what it would cost to have indoor cultivation on on a somewhat commercial scale, I guess. Um, and for a dispensary, apparently capital costs, upfront capital costs would be about $150,000 to $2 million. And for indoor cultivation with the benchmark being for about a thousand plants yielding um, 350 pounds uh, of plants yearly would be about $830,000. So it's obviously like quite expensive, right? And there are some states, so, you know, the ones that come to mind are like Illinois, 
which did it a little bit earlier than, than New York, but with sort of social equity programs that are in that are that have been legislated into the the legalization. And it's it's interesting because it's like you can see where they've like tried, right? Like so for instance in, in Illinois, there are three different components for the state's social equity program for who they decide to like give licenses to because the the few licenses that they will be giving out like it's it's essentially guaranteeing that they will have a a, a head start right in the economy and an economy that we know is going to be booming some of the things that they've put into to that application process is um, you get like extra points, right? If you come from an under-resourced area um, or one that was disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, or if your family member was directly impacted by police enforcing of anti-marijuana laws, or if the applicant hires um, 51% of employees from a distressed neighborhood negatively affected by the war on drugs. So, all of those things sound great on its face, but unfortunately, right, in the time since the law has passed, there's been lawsuits against the state of Illinois, essentially because the, again, because of the, like the few um, licenses that they were going to grant, it turned out that there was potential favoritism for people who were connected to the government or connected to certain companies and, and whatnot. And all that to say, what the, the actual impact of that meant that the people who were from these uh, neighborhoods and communities that were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, let's say they put in all of this work, all of these resources to apply for these permits because of these lawsuits, because the program wasn't implemented well, their lives and their licenses have just been on hold for months and months and months. And what that means is that it's just costing them money to, to stand and wait. And what that means is they're probably not going to be able to survive. And, and it, the question becomes, is it just going to give room for these MSOs, the multi-state operators, you know, the big corporations that have already been on the field, like doing in the medical marijuana space, like, is it going to give them even more of, of a head start and leaving people out? So yeah, I feel like there's just like a lot of questions around how best to like, how to make sure that that the implementation of these pretty well-meaning and I think thoughtfully perhaps crafted laws, how they will be implemented, I think will be like the real, real question. Yeah. And something that I read about that in particular, as you know, you're looking at new states legalizing and, and is basically the push to like learn from that and instead of have it be a point system where you get a benefit or whatever just you know if you have a hundred permits say 20 permits or or whatever number are specifically going to people from these communities like if your goal is social equity it it appears based on what we've learned from like illinois that the the additional point system doesn't actually work out for social equity, right? Like at the end, maybe you end up having a more diverse group of growers who got these permits, but it didn't actually do the, the social equity job that you wanted it to. So it's, you know, like we said, maybe this is one of those benefits of going state by state. Maybe New York can look at to Illinois and be like, that didn't work. How can we do it better? And 
yeah, I think that that's, that's one of those hard things, right? Like you can try to put together policies that you think are going to work, but you also have to be able to look at them when they don't and say, okay, like, how can we, how can we rethink this, right? If our real goal is social equity, maybe it just needs to be a separate pool and we need to like figure out how to help those potentially new players in the market because they're more likely to, like you said, not be the the multi-state larger corporations, but you know, truly local businesses, how can we make sure that they can succeed in this market? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm I'm excited to see how the New York State law will be implemented, how it'll be rolled out. Cause I, you know, they do have pretty interesting, robust things in there. Um, and to your point about taxes and yeah, what that means because for New York State the sales tax revenues from adult use cannabis will be put into, I guess, like this fund that aside from the operating expenses of a fund, um, like 40% of it will go to education, 40% of it will be put towards community grant reinvestment fund, and 20% of it will be going to drug treatment and public education. So I think there are still like lots of questions that need to be asked to make sure that true equity is reached. And it's not just something that is like striving for equity on its face, but actually opens a door for business as usual, like capitalism as usual, right? I'm curious to to like revisit and then see what kind of impacts um, a law like this will have. Yeah. And I think as we like look forward towards getting closer to federal legalization. It'll be really interesting to continue to look at it from more like normal market forces. One thing that we haven't really talked about here that personally as a woman I think is interesting is that the way that the industry is structured is like not particularly appealing to women. The the stats on the increased use from women is is there. Same as everybody else, right? When it becomes, when it becomes legal, more people use it. But if you think about the like, everything from, you know, maybe people who are going into dispensaries now, maybe they smoked in high school or in college. And it was like, I didn't know any women dealers. Like, (laughs) it just was such a like, male dominated industry then. And it was like, mostly men that were smoking. At least that's kind of how like it appeared to be. And so something that's really interesting is thinking about how new players in the market are, are actually marketing their products for Mm. women and you can Mm. really see that like especially with with cbd but i mean like i literally bought the caliper cbd because i kept hearing it advertised on on fancy politics and i was like whatever like i should i should try it but like everything from like packaging to how you can buy it to like what it tastes like they're like clearly targeting women now in like a pretty high percentage of the market. So anyways, it'll be really interesting to see how, how legalization just like increases those types of market forces and like how they, how they all sort of like work. And on that note, thanks for hanging out with us this week. We'd love to hear your thoughts about cannabis legalization in your States, or if there's anything you'd be interested in us digging further into. We really appreciate you continuing to rate and share so more people can find us. Thanks and see you soon.